Please turn with me to Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. Daniel chapter 4, verse 4. That's where we'll be reading God's Word momentarily. Beforehand, I'd like to offer a brief introduction and a welcome. It's good to be with you this morning. Glad you saw fit to come out to worship God today. I want to ask you a question. What do you hate? What do you hate? C.J. Mahaney asked that question and answered it in his little book titled Humility. What do you hate? He said, I'll tell you what what I hate. I've got two lists. The first list is a silly list that begins with foods that I sometimes think must be products of the fall. He wrote, I detest meatloaf. I loathe sauerkraut and I hate cottage cheese. I even hate it when anyone eats cottage cheese in my presence. It ruins my appetite. He said, I also despise any and all professional sports teams from New York City. That's simply part of my heritage, he wrote, being born and raised in the Washington, D.C. area. That's just the beginning, a little sampling of my silly list of things I hate. But I also have a serious list of things I hate. I'm sure you have one, too. I hate abortion, racism, child abuse, etc. So what do you hate? What's on your list? I'll just pause for five seconds and let you think about it. What do you hate? Perhaps if I gave you another 50 seconds, you could start to jot them down. If I gave you five minutes, you could probably write a paper on it at some point, or at least verbalize one. The things that you hate, people cut you off in traffic. Maybe it's a principled issue, more like the ones that I mentioned in the latter, which you could write about. Mahaney makes this assertion. Next, he says, You and I hate nothing to the degree that God hates pride. We're not talking about a pride of lions, an aberration of a pride month. We're not talking about some spin on pride or even a good kind of pride, like pride over what God has done. He's talking about individual human pride, particularly a spiritual pride. He makes the assertion, you and I hate nothing to the degree that God hates pride. His hatred for pride is pure His hatred for pride is holy. I had to pause when I read that. Hatred of pride being holy. We talk a lot about holy love, which is predominant in the attributes of God. Now, what about a holy hate? Since God can't sin, if he hates something, then it must truly be detestable, right? Because his hate can't be sullied either, like ours can be. Often with us, Our hate is unholy. Always with God, what he hates is holy for him to hate. So he hates a lack of mercy in terms of positions. When people who have positions don't use them to show mercy to the oppressed. He hates divorce relationally. Of course, sometimes those things happen. They're out of the control of one of the parties but it doesn't make the practice any less disruptive. And generationally, if we'll be honest, we know havoc is wrecked and healing takes time. 
Even when sin can be overcome, pride-filled sins, even when they can be overcome, they're not any less painful in the moment or any less detestable to God. But I don't want you to think about positionally today so much, although mercy is important. And I don't want you to think relationally today, although marriage and relationships are important. I want you to think attitudinally, an attitude of pride. Think about something that seems as nebulous as an attitudinal sin, an underlying sin like pride. In fact, my biggest concern with today's sermon is that because it seems intangible, it wouldn't be practical and applicable in your mind. I pray that it is. I pray that it is for me and that it is for you. Because I do not stand here today as a man devoid of pride. I stand here today as a man who, through preparing for this sermon, came to realize afresh my need for the grace of God every single day. In fact, you might think from this introduction that this is not a sermon about grace at all, but in fact, grace will be embedded in each point of the sermon. God-hating pride is not absent of grace. Pride is man's first sin, if we look at the garden. Pride is the first of the so-called seven deadly sins, and it likely underlies each and every one of them. John Calvin wrote it this way. He said, God cannot bear with seeing His glory appropriated by the creature in even the smallest degree. So intolerable to Him is the sacrilegious arrogance of those who, by praising themselves, obscure His glory as far as they can. He opposes pride or the proud, Scripture says, but gives grace to the humble. Thankful for that but. We see that in James 4, 6 and 1 Peter 5, 5. God opposes the proud. He's oppositional to the prideful. Not neutral toward them. But He gives grace to the humble. Pride undermines church unity. So you might be asking, well, what what is pride? What is a working definition of pride? I think a working definition of pride would be an overinflated view of one's importance in light of man's sinfulness and God's holiness. Differently, one has described has defined rather humility as a right view of yourself in light of the, the sinfulness of humanity and the holiness of God. So really to define pride you need to define humility. Pride brings down church unity. Pride brings down leaders. Proverbs 16, 18 tells us this. Pride goes before destruction. A haughty spirit goes before a fall. Not just the fall, but any fall. So when we look at our text today, we are going to find this theme of pride and the need for the destruction of pride. And we find it in a narrative from 2,600 years ago. Our text today in Daniel 4 will show the inner life of the most powerful man in the 6th century global superpower, Babylon. That was an ancient Babylon, but this would be a resurgent Babylon, perhaps at its height. And they sought, and he sought, to build a civilization without God Most High. And God intercepted his thinking. He intercepted his aims to be true after a lot of destruction occurred and a lot of hurt and harm. Read Lamentations for the details. But somehow Daniel at least parked the angst about that 
and didn't get bitter as he told the ruling king of the global superpower the truth, as he told him with a tender heart, it seems, what he should do, and as he even cared and prayed for the welfare of the Babylonian empire that he found himself under. Daniel 4 describes a great humbling. The title today is Pride's Fall. And we most all agree that pride is wrong, don't we? For Christians, most all of us would agree that pride is sin. If I were to go to each of you and say, is pride wrong? You would say, yeah, well, sure, pride is wrong. Where we would disagree is how identifiable the sin of pride is. We would disagree to the extent to which it practically matters to God because of the ambiguity, it seems, of pride, and what we should do about it tangibly. We'll try to address some of those things today. I won't do a thorough treatment, but hopefully we will begin that conversation, things for you to think about. So the main point of, I believe, this text and of the sermon is that pride falls in every converted believer because of God's grace. Because of God's grace, pride falls. And we're going to see pride falling in every converted believer as a concept through this narrative. And we're going to see the grace in helping it fall by the way God disrupts our otherwise easy lives. We see the grace in how He confronts us, as well as how He is persistent to finish what He starts in us. So if you want to follow with three words in three subsets of text within Daniel 4 today, notice in verses 4 to 18, disrupting. Notice how disrupting God is to this person. And then in verses 19 to 27, notice confronting how God is gracious to have this individual confronted with truth, with revelation. And then thirdly, in verses 28 to 37, notice how God in His grace is persistent to finish the work that He begins in one. And it is gracious, as painful as it is. All right, so without further ado, let us hear the Word of God without interruption from Daniel chapter 4, verses 4 through 37, the end of the chapter. In the first person, the king says, I. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house and prospering in my palace. I saw a dream that made me afraid. As I lay in bed, the fancies and the visions of my head alarmed me. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. Then the magicians, the enchanters, the Chaldeans, the astrologers came in, and I told them the dream, but they could not make known to me its interpretation. At last, at last, Daniel came in before me, he who was named Belteshazzar, after the name of my God, and in whom is the spirit of the holy gods. And I told him the dream, saying, O Belteshazzar, chief of the magicians, because I know that the spirit of the holy gods is in you, and that no mystery is too difficult for you, tell me the visions of my dream that I saw and their interpretation. The visions of my head as I lay in bed were these. I saw and behold a tree in the midst of the earth, and its height was great. The tree grew and became strong, and its top reached to heaven, and it was visible to the end of the whole earth. Its leaves were beautiful, and its fruit abundant. And in it was food for all. The beasts of the field found shade under it, and the birds of the heavens lived in its branches, and all flesh was fed from it. 
I saw in the visions of my head as I lay in bed, and behold, a watcher, a holy one, came down from heaven. He proclaimed aloud and said thus, Chop down the tree and lop off its branches, strip off its leaves and scatter its fruit. Let the beasts flee from under it and the birds from its branches, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze amid the tender grass of the field. Let him be wet with the dew of heaven. Let his portion be with the beasts in the grass of the earth. Let his mind be changed from a man's, and let a beast's mind be given to him, and let seven periods of time pass over him. The sentence is by the decree of the watchers, the decision by the word of the holy ones, to the end, to the end that the living may know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will and sets over it the lowliest of men." This dream I, King Nebuchadnezzar, saw. And you, O Belshazzar, tell me the interpretation, because all the wise men of my kingdom are not able to make known to me the interpretation, but you are able, for the Spirit of the holy gods is in you. Now for our second section. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while. And his thoughts alarmed him. The king answered and said, Belshazzar, let not the dream or the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, my Lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. The tree you saw, which grew and became strong so that its top reached to heaven and it was visible to the end of the whole earth, whose leaves were beautiful and its fruit abundant and in which was food for all under which beasts of the earth found shade and in whose branches the birds of the heavens lived. It is you, O king, it is you, O king, who have grown and become strong. Your greatness has grown and reaches to heaven, and your dominion to the ends of the earth. And because the king saw a watcher, a holy one, come down from heaven and say, Chop down the tree and destroy it, but leave the stump of its roots in the earth, bound with a band of iron and bronze in the tender grass of the field, and let him be wet with the dew of heaven, and let his portion be with the beasts of the field, till seven periods of time pass over him. This is the interpretation. This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree of the Most High which has come upon my Lord the King, that you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field. You shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and you shall be wet with the dew of heaven, and seven periods of time shall pass over you, till you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom He will. And as it was commanded to leave the stump and the roots of the tree, your kingdom shall be confirmed for you from the time that you know that heaven rules. Heaven rules. Therefore, therefore, O king, therefore, O king, let my counsel be acceptable to you. Break off your sins by practicing righteousness and your iniquities by showing mercy to the oppressed, that there may perhaps be a lengthening of your prosperity. Now, our third subset in this lengthy text starts in verse 28. Verse 28. All this came upon King Nebuchadnezzar. At the end of 12 months, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I have built by my mighty hand, my by mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. Is not this great Babylon, which I have built, 
by my mighty power as a royal residence and for the glory of my majesty. While the words were still in the king's mouth, there fell a voice from heaven, O King Nebuchadnezzar, to you it is spoken, the kingdom has departed from you. The kingdom has departed from you, and you shall be driven from among men, and your dwelling shall be with the beasts of the field, and you shall be made to eat grass like an ox, and seven periods of time shall pass from you until you know that the Most High rules the kingdom of men and gives it to whom he will. Immediately the word was fulfilled against Nebuchadnezzar. He was driven from among men and ate grass like an ox, and his body was wet with the dew of heaven till his hair grew as long as eagles' feathers and his nails were like birds' claws. At the end of the days, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lifted my eyes to heaven and my reason returned to me. And I bless the Most High and praise and honor Him who lives forever. For His dominion is an everlasting dominion. And His kingdom endures from generation to generation. All the inhabitants of the earth are accounted as nothing. And He does according to His will among the host of heaven. And among the inhabitants of the earth, and none can, say, can stay His hand or say to Him, What have you done? At the same time, my reason returned to me, and for the glory of my kingdom, my majesty and splendor returned to me. My counselors and my lords sought me, and I was established in my kingdom, and still more greatness was added to me. Now I, Nebuchadnezzar, praise and extol and honor the King of heaven, for all his works are right, and his ways are just, and those who walk in pride, he is able to. Why don't you read that with me, starting at the end? And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Let's read it again. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. And God bless the reading of his word to minister grace unto all who hear. So we have now read a lengthy passage of Scripture, a fantastic story about the most powerful man in the known world in the 6th century B.C., a man whose armies conquered Judah, tortured Jews, carted off their best and brightest. A man who could not rest in his success because God wouldn't let him rest. And so our first point this morning is a point of grace. It is constituted in verses 4 through 18. And the point is that pride falls in every converted believer because of God's grace to disrupt, particularly to disrupt your ease and your false modesty and your postponement of dealing with spiritual things. So he disrupts your ease. Look at verse 4. This is grace. Look at verse 4, how it begins. I, Nebuchadnezzar, was at ease in my house. In the first person, the king admits he was prospering in his professional palaces. The palaces would be a, a way of talking about his professional life, his work. He's prosperous there. And the king admits in his private life, in his house, he's at ease in, the, in his private life and in his house. But God disrupts this ease to make him afraid in his mind, in his thoughts. He is alarmed. Now that should relate with us today. It is true that some are hungry and we should feed them. It is true that some need clothing and we should offer them clothing. But very often today, 
the problems that we're most aware of in our society, in our world, are problems between the ears, right? They're problems in here, in the mind. I'm not trivializing those problems. They are the problems that an affluent society can afford to have because we're not hiding in bunkers and holding guns. However, those problems don't go unaddressed in Scripture. We read a verse earlier, Brother Robert did, where the, the, the ask is that you would cast your anxieties on the Lord. Why? Because He cares for you. Preceded by God opposes the proud, presumably those that won't give their concerns to the Lord, but yet instead He gives grace to those who are humble. 1 Peter 5, if that's a text you'd like to consider with regard to your cares and concerns. It is an ease, relatively speaking, of a time that we have lived in here for the last 80 years or so since World War II. We have had relative peace and relative prosperity likened to, in a modern sense, what 2,600 years ago Babylon experienced during its zenith. But the Lord would not allow the one that he's chasing down, to live in that ease. In fact, he rose thoughts in his mind that disrupted his relative ease. There's nothing outwardly that should have concerned him. But this dream had power. These visions had power with the king. And it was grace to disrupt that ease. And it's grace to disrupt our ease. A God that loves you doesn't leave you alone in your sin. No matter how many times you ask, just leave me alone. He won't. Because He's chasing you down. He cares for your heart. He loves you. And so He will not leave you alone in your sin. As a believer, He will call you again and again to Himself and back to Himself. And if, like I surmise, this king was at this point, if he was along the way but hadn't converted to the one true God yet, note that he's still using plural descriptions of the gods in the beginning of the chapter and singular description of the God at the end of the chapter. If he's along the way, and if it is right to surmise that Nebuchadnezzar was converted, then we can say here that it is grace for God to disrupt the ease of those that are yet converted. He is disrupting your ease and prosperity so that you will consider spiritual things. Very often, it is a crisis that leads us to consider a fresh conversion. It says in the text that he is alarmed, he is afraid, verses 4 and 5 says. And he has a sense of false modesty, and here's where we derive that from. Look at verse 6, the king calls in the wise men by decree. Powerful people always love decrees, don't they? They make their demands, you know, they tell you what they want. He makes a decree, verse 6 says. So I made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me, that they might make known to me the interpretation of the dream. But he doesn't yet call the truth teller, though he has experience with Daniel. He doesn't yet call Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego, the three praying friends with Daniel. This is the first person account of a pagan king that I think will be, would be converted. But this king had named Daniel after his own pagan god, verse 8b, my god, and continues to sort of play around with the god of Israel amidst a myriad of other gods. He's hedging. He's okay with religion. He doesn't really care which one. He's a religious man. He doesn't see the way. He sees many ways. Perhaps 
Even after the experience with these godly men, the king still hadn't put his faith in God Most High. But by grace, that was about to change. I need to say something about this idea of false modesty because I think it's what's going on here, and I think it's instructive for those of us that don't have such powerful positions in life. He doesn't go to Daniel first. He goes to Daniel last. He flatters Daniel and tells Daniel, I know you can give me the interpretation. Perhaps that was just the pecking order. But I tend to think that we want to get through a crisis with the least amount of truth as possible until we come to embrace truth. And Daniel, for his praying three times a day, for Daniel, for his previous dream interpretation and friendship with the three that got thrown into the fiery furnace, Daniel is someone that, though tenderly, will tell you the truth and nothing but the truth, so help him God. And so by the time he gets there, there is maybe a sense of false modesty. He gets to Daniel when no one else can satisfy his soul. And Daniel comes along and he tells him what the interpretation of the dream is. If, in fact, the king is not yet humbled and has a sense of false modesty in his deportment with Daniel, then there is a lesson for those of us in lesser positions as well. Most of the commentaries that I read in final prep for this sermon described the danger of false humility. said it's easier, often they would say similar things like this, it's easier to see pride in a person in position because sometimes they're blind to it or they just don't care. It's harder to see pride in the average person, in the middle class or lower middle class earner. It's harder to see pride in the rank and file. But pride no less exists and is a besetting sin for many. So how do I identify pride if the world wouldn't necessarily see it. Can pride actually exist in a person who is self-deprecating, who speaks of themselves in a negative way, who walks around with their head down? And almost to a commentator, they all tried to address this. And I tried to sum it up with a sentence that might help those that have this besetting sin and don't even realize it. And it's very simply this. Pride is not based on position. Pride is based on whether or not you make the majority of life about your own self-interest. Pride is about making life about me. Even if I'm subservient otherwise, even if I'm self-deprecating, Pride is about making life about me. When God intercepts a prideful person, either for the very first time or along the way of our sanctification, when He intercepts a prideful person, as C.S. Lewis famously said, He doesn't make that falsely modest person think less of themselves in a self-deprecating way. When God is at work in your life, He doesn't make you think less of yourself. He makes you think of yourself less. The the cause of God in your life produces a look to God for how life should be. And you begin to cherish His, His attributes, His ways, Him. 
And seeing his holiness bit by bit begins to affect how you see others and what you want for yourself. Differently, you began to see God's decrees as having a prime of place over your desires. God's decrees as clearly as they clearly told us in Scripture. Put it differently, you begin to care about God and what He has to say, and that shapes your desires instead of your demands or your decrees being lobbed up to God as a condition of whether or not you'll care about Him and what He has to say. There is, and Robert Godfrey wrote about in last month's Table Talk very, very helpfully, if you have that online, as did a few other authors whose theme was on pride. There is a kind of, of false modesty that is, is self-loathing, but it's not actual humility. And so if that, if that describes you today, I would just want to give you some hope that God in His grace won't leave you alone either. He's not going to leave you alone in your ease either. Humility, pride's opposite, helps you to see yourself rightly in light of God. And humility comes from God. Only the doctrine of man produces pride. And only the doctrine of God produces humility. So think of him. Thinking of God is what you were made for. We talk about the the famous McShane quote, looking to the Lord to overcome you're looking to yourself too much. Well, what about thinking of the Lord? Like actually thinking about Him instead of thinking about yourself and your desires. Practice it. Practice it by reading Scripture. Practice it daily. You need it, and I certainly need it. And we should encourage one, one, one another in it. We talk about this, this grace of, of disrupting our lives and our ease and our false modesty. I say one more thing about this first point. There's a grace in disrupting our perpetual postponing of spiritual things. I'll get back to that stuff later. I don't have time for that right now. The king could not help but address it. Short-term solutions were no longer going to work. He'd gone to the truth teller, and the truth teller was on mission to tell him, you're not going to be able to escape this. He had to get the troubling vision out. He told it all to Daniel. He couldn't avoid it forever. The sense that the divine of the universe was closing in on him and hemming him in could not be avoided for much longer. He's either going to go crazy or convert, or maybe both. He goes crazy and then he converts. That's the right way to read this text, this narrative. The the king admits Daniel's ability to interpret Revelation. If you look at verse 18, just glance down at your Bible. If you have it open there, I hope you do, or, or at the screen. It says here, you are able. The others are not able. You are able, for the spirit of the holy gods is in you. Again, still paganistic and polytheistic instead of monotheistic and worshiping the one true God in one way. But he recognized Daniel's ability. He's on the way. I hope you see something here of divine patience. Unlike other so-called gods, our God is not a tyrant. The Bible says in 2 Peter, he is patient, not willing that any should perish, but all should come to repentance. He's patient with people. That is not a reason to sin more that grace might abound more and is not a reason to postpone indefinitely spiritual things. No, 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 no. That is not a right response or spiritual response to God's grace. It is simply to say, if this morning this sermon is hard-hitting and you don't know how you'll get out of your pride and the disruption hasn't quite got you to the point yet that you know that you need to be, all I'm saying is this. As I plead with you to come to Jesus, as you come to Jesus, I want you to know of His patience with you as He is 
bringing your sins to light and drawing out your sanctification over the course of your life. So don't postpone things. It is a grace to have your otherwise prosperous and easy life disrupted. Number two, pride falls in every converted believer because of God's grace in confronting, in confronting. We see this in verses 19 to 27. Now, perhaps this has already been alluded to pretty well. We know that confronting is part of being disrupted, but there are some aspects of confronting that are helpful to us if we will take them on balance and look at them this morning. I wonder, to frame it, have you thought, ever thought, or do you think about being confronted with truth as a grace from God? Do you think about being confronted with truth from the Holy Word as grace from God? Oftentimes, I know that in my carnality, I think of being confronted with truth as very inconvenient. <laughs> and being confronted with truth is something I want to do the least with it I have to to get back to my otherwise happy life living in my pride. But being confronted with truth, spiritual truth, truth from God's Word, is actually a grace. And the king eventually finds it to be so. <clears throat> if you look at verse 19, God uses Daniel to confront the king in his thoughts. Look, look, look at verse 19. Then Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed for a while, and his thoughts alarmed him. And the king answered, Belshazzar, let not the dream of the interpretation alarm you. Belshazzar answered and said, My lord, may the dream be for those who hate you and its interpretation for your enemies. So being confronted with truth is a grace from God, and God uses Daniel to confront the king's thoughts. It's, it's interesting here. He, he sort of confronts, he sort of comforts Daniel as Daniel is, is confronting him. I, I think there's something to that. I think there's a sense in which we need to understand our obligation if we want more truth and nothing but the truth in our lives and see it as a grace, there's an obligation to comfort the, the truth teller, the person that's telling you the most truth, not to marginalize them from your lives. Not to toot my own horn or anything here, because that's not the purpose of his statement, but do you view the pulpit, whether it's myself, Kurt, one of the other brothers that preaches, do you view the pulpit as a place where you get to receive truth? Are you comforting toward the idea that you might be and should be graciously confronted with truth today? Do you see correction as affection from God? Hebrews chapter 12 says it is. Now, it's not to say sloppy correction and firing truth darts at people and the gotcha moment. That's not it. Daniel is so generous in this. He's tender and concerned for the conversion of the ungodly, and yet he doesn't flinch to tell the truth once he starts speaking. But the gravity of it causes him to pause. Look at 19 again. Daniel, whose name was Belshazzar, was dismayed himself, dismayed for a while, sort of pause. He's alarmed himself. It's an earth-shattering vision that the king has had and that Daniel now sees. And he says, I, I wish the dream was for somebody else. Uh, to maybe extrapolate a little bit. It's very disruptive when global empires fall and rise. Lots of collateral damage happens. There's a, there's a there's a lot of stuff that happens whenever an otherwise stable civilization is upended. I live in this civilization. I can't wish for your fall. I don't want to wish for your fall. It's not smart for my own head for me to wish for your fall. He's not chippy or bitter about it, though he would have had every reason to have been. 
He simply goes about the business of telling the truth, and he interprets the dream in light of the king. He tells the truth. So, this confronting is grace, and the confronting of the decrees or the demands is grace too. Look at verse 24 in this section. It's really helpful. It says, This is the interpretation, O king. It is a decree, a decree of the Most High, which has come upon my Lord, the king. Let your eyes gravitate back to verse 6. This is where the king made a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before him. They might make known the interpretation. If you were to look back at chapters 3, 2, and 1, you would see the prolificness of a king making decrees. He decrees this, he decrees that, he decrees this, he decrees that. It's almost like this is a show-stopping decree. Like, I've had enough of your decrees. I made one. It's going to happen. Shush with your decrees and bow the knee to me. The one true God comes along and makes a decree that all the wise men of Babylon should be brought before me. I'm sorry, King Nebuchadnezzar makes that decree. But in verse 24, God makes a decree. It is the decree of the Most High that Daniel now interprets, which has come upon King Nebuchadnezzar. And I thought about this in relation to our congregation, in relation to our faith. When you juxtapose those two verses, we think we might not be kings and queens in the earthly sense, but we think no problem can't be solved if only those in power give me what I demand. If they just give us what I want, I will be okay, I'll be happy, I'll be glad. But God, in a sense, says no. He hears your demands. He knows of your decrees, if you want to call them that way, and and your little area of responsibility. And He ushers His own decrees. In this case, He says, this is the decree of the Most High God. This is what's going to come upon you. And when God makes a decree, it's ironclad. The decorative will of God is unshakable. So we would do well to know what he has decreed, especially with regard to salvation, which Scripture speaks so much about. We talked about that in last week's sermon. As I said earlier, our demands never take priority over God's decrees. And so being confronted with the truth where that happens atomistically, individually, where your demands are flapping up against decrees, is part of the project of the preaching of the Word, the hearing of the Word, the application of the Word, the teaching of the Word in the classes of the church, the discipling that goes on in the church, the conversations, the the dozens of little conversations that happen about the sermon itself and the text itself as we go throughout the week. We are to sort sort of comfort those that bring the Word because those that bring the Word have a job that they don't necessarily want to do. We're sometimes dismayed at the things we must say because it's true and because it is grace-based. The starting point for your desires is not your demands. You're looking in the wrong place. The world tells you to look to yourself and to exalt yourself and promote yourself and realize yourself and express yourself. And God calls that attitude sin. He has decreed that that self-absorption is sin. Instead... You should look to God, learn of Him, find Him to be a gentle and lowly Savior that gives you rest, and then find your rest in Him. Like St. Francis of Assisi famously said, your heart will be restless until it rests in thee. So God's decrees need to be a starting point for your desires and not vice versa. God's decrees need to be the starting point for your desires and not vice versa. It is grace to confront our demands. It's grace to confront 
our thoughts. It's grace to confront our besetting sin of pride outright. Look at verse 27, the last verse in the subset. Verse 27's counsel seems a lot like um, the minor prophet Micah, Micah 6.8. It feels like that verse. In fact, there's another church in town. I saw a sign. They had that verse on the sign. It's a wonderful summary of the ethical expectations of God's people in the Old Testament. This verse is similar to it in its description. It, it says, Break off your sins by practicing righteousness. Break off your sins by showing mercy to the oppressed. So to kind of boil it down, get away from your sins, repent of your sins by, by doing right and by showing mercy and walking humbly with your God. And the very last verse of, of our text today, we'll, we'll read similarly, but let's stay here for now in verse 27. Justice, mercy, as we've already said, casting cares on Him, for He cares for you. Humility is active. It's actively killing pride. Spiritual humility comes by grace from God as we're rousted from our ease and also as we are confronted with truth in our thinking, in our, in our demands, or our desires, you might say, as, as well as in our actual actions, our besetting sins. You will see more justice to do. You will see more mercy to give as you cast your cares on Him and live in the humility that God has shown you how to live in. I, was, I have a friend... Uh, in the church, and he uh, turned me toward a bookmark by Nancy Wagamuth, Brokenness, The Heart God Revives. I won't tell you his name, but I'll tell you his wife's name is Christy Bomberger. So she shared this with him, as I understand, and I think I want to share it with all the husbands, maybe with the wives too. Here's what it says. You can download the bookmark. Maybe I'll post it. Proud people focus on the failures of others. Broken people are overwhelmed with a sense of their own spiritual need. Proud people have a critical fault-finding spirit. They look at everyone else's faults with a microscope, but their own with a telescope. Broken people are compassionate. They can forgive much because they know how much they've been forgiven. Proud people are self-righteous. They look down on others. Broken people esteem all others better than themselves. Proud people have an independent, self-sufficient spirit. Broken people have a dependent spirit. They recognize their need for others. Proud people have to prove that they are right. Broken people are willing to yield the right to be right. It goes on like that. If you have a lowliness to you, you're certainly halfway there. But self-loathing is not the same as spiritual humility. The bigger the tree, the harder the fall. But the fall happens nonetheless if your besetting sin is pride. We've seen God's grace in a couple of different ways already. Let's look at a third and final way that God is graceful in not leaving us where we are. Pride falls in every converted believer because of God's grace in finishing, in finishing what He starts in you. We see this in verses 28 to 37, but let's just take one quick step back and summarize this third point. Think about the New Testament. Think about the book of Philippians. What does it say? He who began a good work in you will be faithful to do what? To leave it half-baked? 
He's going to finish it, right? He's going to complete it. So this speaks to the finishing of our God. If you know of uh, concrete work, you know finishing work is important. The top is what you see, it's what you walk on, it's important. If you uh, are a fan of any kind of a sport or if you've ever played, for example, basketball, I played basketball, a lot of times you ask, is that person a finisher? Can they finish? It's one thing to get all around the rim, but can they finish at the rim? Can they score the ball? Can they actually get the thing done? I want you to know a great description of our God is He is a finisher. More about that in a moment. Let's see how we get there. It says here in verse 28 that everything that God had promised would come upon prideful king Nebuchadnezzar came upon him. It actually didn't come for 12 months. It may have looked like it wasn't going to come. But at the end of a year, verse 29, he was walking on the roof of the royal palace of Babylon, and the king answered and said, is not this great Babylon, which I, 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 I made all this happen. And if you've ever read about the hanging gardens of Babylon, or, or maybe if you would want to take some time to understand the beauty, the majesty of ancient Babylon as sort of an educational enterprise, then you would, would understand why a person would be tempted to have pride in such a terrain, a domain. But you would also understand that all glory be to God and not to self because you're familiar, your conscience is informed by Christian things. After all that he's witnessed and all the truth he's been told, all the ease that's been disrupted and upended, he has the audacity here. After his guilt is assuaged, after he's gotten past the crisis points and Daniel's out of sight and maybe out of mind, look what I've done. And But God does not leave him alone, and he yet disrupts him again, and he says, or it says here that while the words were still in the king's mouth, these treacherous six words come his way. The kingdom has departed from you. I can't think of a, of a scarier batch of six words in the Old Testament than that phrase at the end of verse 31. The kingdom has departed from you. The kingdom has departed from you. And immediately, it does depart from him. And he... He does what he said he would do. The prophecy comes true. He finishes the king's discomfort, the king's humiliation, as the subhead is in most of your Bible translations, I think. And all of this comes upon the king. Although it seemed delayed, it seems like justice will never come, it seems like the prophecies will never be fulfilled, and then they do. I've said this many times from this pulpit because it was a striking to me on my youth. I found myself in New Orleans as a late teenager, and the New Orleans is known as, as kind of a sin city. There's a t-shirt, and it said at the top, because I had this sort of trained conscience as a kid, I was caught, it caught my eye, it said at the top, Jesus is coming. And I, and I thought, well, that's an interesting shirt. And then I looked down the t-shirt, I'll never forget this, because it just stuck me. Uh, look busy. Look busy. Jesus is coming, look busy. And I thought, man, this is a new level of spitting in the face of God. I mean... And it's one thing to know what you're doing is wrong and just sort of not want to be caught in it. It's an altogether different thing. It just, eh, it won't happen. Eh. If, 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 if your thought about God is that there will never be a day of reckoning, you're so wrong. You're so wrong. And I plead with you not to presume upon the patience of the Lord. 
but to surrender your very life to Him. What He promises you, what He promises you is eternal life. But I'm not going to sugarcoat this. What He demands of you is complete humility toward Him. He will not be second to anyone, nor should He be. It would be sinful for Him to be, and He cannot sin, so He will not be. He is the the most high. He is worthy of all accolade and praise. In fact, the structure and the content of our worship services every single Sunday morning are designed to refocus you on that fact. And it's not just an academic fact. It's not just what the church is fixated on. It is what the church is fixated on. It's what we know to be the most true, the most blessed, the most holy, the most capable, and yes, even the most finishing and persistent in all of our existences. God is gracious to put this prideful king on his knees. For a complete period of time, seven periods of time, a complete period of time, he has this syndrome where he thinks himself an animal. Perhaps the guilt got to him. He loses his reason. It's gone. His counselors, they leave. He's by himself on the grass. I mean, on top of it all, looking down, he's now on the bottom of it all with the beast who once took shade underneath his tree, looking up with a wet snoot. Complete and utter humility. If that's what it takes to yank someone out of their pride, better to have your pride destroyed than to enter into the day of judgment with your pride in complete tact. Repentance accompanies conversion. Repentance always accompanies conversion because repentance is the other side of the coin of salvation to belief. If you're unconverted today, I want to say just a word or two to you, for you. I was too. I was too. And I mean, pride and humility is a struggle I have still, and so does every other honest Christian in this room. But I mean, I, I, I was defined by pride before my conversion. It was about myself. Even if I did for others, it was about myself, my esteem, my exaltation, my sufficiency. Me, 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 me. Just like it was for King Nebuchadnezzar. I'm no different in that way. It's a human condition. You're not either. And I would say to you, unbeliever, I would say to you that the glory of the gospel of Christ, what he does for us, what he's done for us, is too too wonderful to leave shelved and postponed for another day. What I would say to you is, as a now person on the other side of this, is I can recall coming to a point where verses like all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God and the wages of sin is death and hell. I can remember verses like being so heavy on me that the truth 
of the gift of God is eternal life through Jesus Christ our Lord being so powerful for me, I, I can remember being so weighed down by the reality of my incompleteness, my lack of finishing, my inability to get things done on the main, my short term of life. I, I can remember that so, so powerfully that there was nowhere else to go but the way. And if that is you, if, you, if it's all closing in on you, and you think of it as, a, as something that has to drive you crazy in your guilt, you don't have to go to the dew of the grass in an animal-like state to receive the same conversion that I think this king did. All that is necessary is for you in that way to say, God, please save me. He's already there anyway. He got you to the point that you're at. He regenerates your heart. He makes you ready to say the words. And I assure you this, I assure you of this. He does not then count your sin against you. But He begins a work in you at the moment of your conversion that will be completed on the day of Christ. And it is wonderful. It is hard, but it is wonderful. If He's finishing your discomfort, your humiliation today, if He's bringing you to a, a repentance today. Know that He will finish the salvation that He's willing to start in you this very day. The King's theology changes and deepens. His worship expands. He, his proclamation is noted right here in this text. In fact, I think He wants the world to know. It starts in Daniel 4 with it and it ends with it. Look, look at what happens when He's returned to His senses. It says in verse 34 and following, at the end of the days of His humility, I, Nebuchadnezzar, lift my eyes to heaven. Lift your eyes to heaven today. My reason comes back. Praise God, Christian, for your reasoning. It's not a given. Your ability to reason together. I bless the Most High. I praised Him. I honored Him who lives forever. This indented text, this sort of song about the dominion of God, the wonder of God, and no one can question God's truthfulness and veracity or say, what have you done? And then he comes back in verse 36. He says, at the same time, my reason returned to me. And for the glory of my kingdom, my, master, my majesty returned to me. So he actually gets back his reason. He gets, in this case, gets like Job. He gets back his position after his humility. And it says here, verse 37, the clincher. I, Nebuchadnezzar, now praise and extol and honor the king of heaven for all his works. His works are right, all of them. Every single one of them, his ways are just, even when we don't understand them. He's right and just. And those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a great memory verse. Would you want to memorize those last 10 words of 37 this week? Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. What a great memory verse. Daniel 4, 37. Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Would you say it with me? Those who walk in pride, he is able to humble. Now, this would make a great sermon for sure in so many ways with regard to pride. But our pride is crushed when we consider not the advice and the narrative of an ancient powerful king, but of a different and more enduring king for a different and more enduring kingdom. Here, the words of Philippians chapter 2, verses 4 to 11. And don't just listen to this Man, woman, boy, girl, young, old, rich, poor, whatever the case may be, regardless of what 
ethnic background, social background you have, where you grew up. Here, this is for everybody. This is our great king with a capital K. Listen to the description of our king in Philippians 2, 4 to 11. It says, Let each of you look not only to his own interests, but also to the interests of others. Have this mind among yourselves, which is yours in Christ Jesus, who, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but made himself nothing, taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Quick pause there. It is hard to stay prideful when your focus is on the cross of Christ. That is a wonderful way to see pride and diminish pride and see pride fall in each and every converted believer. Pride is a bigger deal and a more tangible thing than what we want to give it credit for. And God cares more about it. In fact, He hates it to the point that He addresses it robustly in Scripture. Make a study of it. Now hear these last words, verse 8 through 11 of Philippians 2. Being found in human form, he humbled himself by being obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. This is our King, Jesus. Therefore God has exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. I'm reminded that this King, in his humility, not only models it, but is it for us. He is humility for us. He has died for us. We don't have to be humble enough to get salvation. He's done it for us. And I'm reminded of what a finishing Lord that He is. He prayed His priestly prayer in John 17. I have finished the work you came that you gave me that I came to do. I'm reminded of what a finishing God He was whenever on the cross Jesus said those powerful three little words, It is finished. He is a great finisher for you. And He'll be persistent with you to kill your pride for His glory and your good. Let's pray. God, please take these moments as we consider this text and show us how you might have us to respond to this text. Holy God, prepare us now for our response of taking your supper. In Jesus' name, amen. You'll find the elements for the Lord's Supper in the pew in front of you.